0: We're going to be, uh, once again, in 1 Timothy. You can find that in your Bibles. And I'll be reading uh, kind of the whole thrust again from verse 3 at least to verse uh, 9 tonight. But we'll just be focusing tonight on verse 9, as that's kind of where we left off last time. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God, that is faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers and for murderers. We'll pause there. I know it's in the middle of a thought, so it seems abrupt. Uh, we will get to the rest of all these verses uh, in the coming weeks, but the goal, at least for tonight, is just zooming in on verse nine. There, and uh, we'll be talking a little bit about the use of the law. What is the proper use of the law? Last week we talked about uh, the the question: uh, Is the law useful? Can it be used for the church? And so today, tonight, we're going to talk about what are those rules? How do you use them? What are the appropriate uses? Or if I could frame it, what is the lawful use? of the law now we've known we noticed just to quickly recap paul's argument remember he's writing to the church in first timothy uh, or sorry the church in ephesus to timothy in this first letter and he is writing essentially to speak against false teaching and he's speaking to encourage sound teaching so his aim or his goal to timothy is to charge him to rebuke false teaching and to encourage the saints in sound doctrine and part of that at least this initial part is that's gonna require a correct understanding of how you use the law appropriately. And we'll notice that because he's contrasting in verse four, the people who have these endless myths and genealogies and uh, these vain kind of thinking, with with contrasting that the aim of the charge, verse five, is to build up persons with a pure heart, right? So you're building them in love and discipleship to be genuine disciples in the church. And then part of this sound teaching is if Paul wants Timothy to teach soundly, Paul's going to correlate to Timothy or instruct him how to teach soundly. And you see that there in verse 8. Uh, the first correction is that the law is good if you use it lawfully. Now, we're not sure in Ephesus if the false teaching is antinomianism, which means people who dislike the law, people who want to do away with it. So Paul has to say, no, 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 the law is good. You don't do away with it. Or if he's saying, or if the false teaching was something like legalism, whereas someone is asserting the law is good and then they're using it unlawfully. So Paul is kind of threading the needle between antinomianism on the one hand, people who think the law is useless, and legalism on the other hand, which says the law is the means of salvation. The law is the good news that saves. He's threading the needle between those two and saying the law is good if you use it lawfully. And we might say, well, what law are you talking about, Paul? And he's going to go on to tell us in verse nine, essentially what law he's talking about. But because we are not model readers, we need to listen more closely. A model reader is someone who would get all the references, right? Uh, If you're a a literary connoisseur, a model reader uh, is hard to be if you're in Shakespeare's time. Shakespeare's jokes don't make sense to modern readers because we're not in his time, we're not in his context, we're not in his audience. We don't get what he's saying. So the English teacher has to explain to you all of Shakespeare's jokes and they're not funny anymore. <laughs> it's kind of like this here. Paul's making reference to things that he would expect his readers to pick up on, specifically Timothy, but we miss. We miss very quickly. And I, what I'm talking about is in verse nine, he's saying the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers and for murderers. And in those, that chain of phrases, he's making a reference to the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, which was laid down by Moses. Now, you don't have to believe me on that. If you could turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And I just want you to keep your, th- keep your finger in 1 Timothy and open your Bible to Exodus as well. One of the benefits of paper Bibles is you can do things like this. You can have two places open at the same time. And I just want you to glance back and forth between the 10 commandments as laid out by Moses, or rather as laid out by God recorded here by Moses. And then the first little bit of what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy. So he says, uh, this is in Exodus 20 I'll be looking at. I'll start in verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the household of slavery. That's God's introduction to his law. And then he says in verse three, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness on anything that is in heaven or above on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold guiltless him who takes his name in vain. And verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He goes on a long exposition there for the sake of time. I'm going to skip down to verse 12. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And verse 13, you shall not murder. Now I'm going to pause. Those first 13 verses that I just read out of Exodus 20 is exactly what Paul is alluding to here when he says uh, in First Timothy, in verse 9, that the, there are the lawless and the disobedient. And what describes the lawless and disobedient, right? These are set up against the just person or the righteous person who does not need the law exhorted onto them. Because the, the righteous person would obey from, from the spirit. So the, uh, the, the lawless person, the disobedient person, what describes them? He's going to give a series of commands or a series of statements. The ungodly and sinners, the unholy and the profane those who strike their fathers and their mothers, and for murderers. Now, taking just the first little bit there, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, that is referenced to the first four of the Ten Commandments. Now, it's, you could draw, if, I, if, I, if you gave me enough time, I think I could argue for exact one-to-one correlation between each of them, but that requires a little bit of an argument, which is, is not good to make, which is there's the Septuagint, and he's referencing Greek terms that would refer to that, but in our English translations, we lose that. So instead, what I want you to see is the thematic idea that he's arguing for. People who violate God's holiness in those first four. And the first table of the Ten Commandments is people who violate God's holiness. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse four, don't make for yourself carved images, but don't be an idolater. Verse seven, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And verse eight, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Those are all God's ordinances to his people. And by observing them, you would observe a worshipful reverence for God. And that's what Paul is saying here when he says that there's these people who are ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. These are people who are violating that first table of the law of God. Or as Jesus summarizes the first table of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he summarizes the second table of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul's gonna get to that second table here in verse nine where he says, he starts to say, those who strike their fathers and mothers and for murderers, right? That's the same. You go back to Exodus 20. Verse 12, you honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land. And verse 13, you shall not murder. Notice how he's following sequentially through the Ten Commandments. Now you'll notice if you were were a keen observer, if you just glance through verse 10, you'll notice he actually continues on that enumerated list. And that continues with don't commit adultery. What does that look like? Don't steal. So he's going to continue on this list. We're going to be talking about that over the next couple of weeks. But for tonight, I just want to put in your mind the lawful use of the law first and foremost is telling us how we ought to obey, love, serve, and worship God. The law of God is not God's command to tell us to do something so that we can earn life before him. It's God telling us, Hey, if you love me, if you want to serve me, this is how you serve me. This is how you express love to me. He tells us how we ought to render our obedience to him because he's a loving God and he doesn't want us guessing in the dark. He doesn't want us guessing aimlessly about what we can do to serve him and love him. He's telling us how we ought to love him. Doesn't that clarify, you know, what God wants from us as his people? So this is good news. So when Paul is telling us all these things in a list, you shouldn't hear all the things that are bad about this. You should hear God has wonderfully clarified for us what he, ca- what he calls for and what he forbids. It's very easy to navigate. Now, that's very different than our culture, which changes what it calls for and what it forbids every two or three months or every 10 years. You know, if you were dropped in the culture with your modern sensibilities back in the 1950s, you wouldn't be able to navigate what's going on even in the same country, the United States, because the culture's demand for what it approves of and what it disapproves of changes so drastically. Here's God recording his law. And for thousands of years, it has remained the same, that he always demands this for obedience and love. Now we're gonna talk a little bit in discussion about exactly how we render this obedience to God. Now we're going to get a little bit into how do we honor the Lord's Day and things like that, but suffice it to say, Paul's argument first and foremost is the law of God is still eternally significant to inform believers about how they ought to love God well. Now that the reason I say all these things is because there are a couple of modern takes on the, how Christians relate to the law of God. The modern popular take, like I say, let's say position one, would be we should have nothing to do with the law of God. The law of God is not useful for us anymore, and we we ought to really rip the Old Testament out of our Bibles. Now, I read a little bit of this in the discussion group last week, but I just want to read to you a little bit, uh, an excerpt from a book here of one author who takes that position. He asked the question, why are Christians behind the movement to post the Ten Commandments in classrooms and courthouses? Why would we not rather post portions of the Sermon on the Mount? Why do we give children a copy of the old covenant bound with the new covenant without teaching them the difference between the two? So he's saying, why do we bind the Bible, Old and New Testament together? Why don't we just divide them? Because we should, we should teach people that the old covenant is different from the new covenant. Now he's pressing that obviously more than we would, even though we do recognize the distinction between old and the new covenant. And then here, why do pastors leverage and say phrases like, the Bible says and the Bible teaches, which inadvertently gives equal authority to everything in the Bible. I think I intend to do that I usually when I use that phrase. And lastly, he says, why do we take marriage and dating advice from a pagan king who had several hundred wives? His point is Solomon, he's calling him in this case a pagan king. The point of all this is if you, if you fundamentally hold the position that the law of God is outdated and not helpful for Christians, you'll end up in that kind of a position. That's option one. I'd encourage you strongly, don't take that position. Option two is the position that most modern Christians default into kind of as a get-go. I think that I shouldn't tear the Old Testament out of the Bible. I'm I'm sure enough of that, but I'm not quite sure how to use or make sense of the Old Testament to inform my life today as a believer. That's the the second position. I think it's helpful, I think it's useful, I think it's good, I'm just not sure how. And then we rely on pastors and good good books. And we try to to build our chops a little bit so we can actually use that well. And I wanna encourage you to go quickly, if you can, from that position to the position that I would like us all to hold, which is, I think the Old Testament is good, but I don't just think so, I know so. And I know why God included the Old Covenant in to give me instruction and edification and growth so I can actually mature. You don't just hope that it's there for edification, you know why it's there. So why is the law here for edification? Last week I mentioned the law being a tool to show us how we ought to grow in reverence for God, how we can grow in obedience towards him. It trains us how we ought to render service to God. So we can say that if we want to be obedient to God, we should not be idolaters, meaning we should not hold anything else in the place of God. And that's a freeing thing because God loves us so much that he knows that anything else in a position of worship for us is slavery to that thing. You can either be a slave to Christ or you can be a slave to, well, anything else you can put yourself in service of. So God loves us by telling us, don't be ungodly. He loves us, that's a a command to show us freedom because in God, when you worship him rightly, it actually is the most free that you'll ever be. Everything else is under the yoke of slavery. Don't be a sinner. Now this, this word could also be rendered idolater. Don't be someone who worships God in such a way that is irreverent. This is a gracious command in the New Testament to tell us to worship God appropriately. Um, It would stand, let's say, it's not quite as harsh as in the Old Covenant because in the Old Covenant, if you did false worship to God, uh, it would be resulting in you being burned or killed, killed at the instant. So don't be ungodly, don't be a sinner. Don't be one who's unholy and profane. So don't be one who is against God being unholy. God is holy, he calls his people to be holy. This is just saying that in a negative sense. And don't be profane, now that word most likely is a reference to observing the Sabbath day. Do not profane the Lord's day. And this is a blessing because the Lord's day is not a, a command of service to God. As, God. as Jesus says, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man to give them rest in the land. The point is, the, when God says don't violate that, he's not giving us a rule to obey, he's giving us freedom to walk into. He's giving us a way to worship. And then these, these last couple, uh, those who strike their fathers and mothers, uh, some translations will render that uh, those who murder fathers and mothers. The point of the, those words is this is connecting murder to uh, the commandment to respect and honor your father and mother. And you might say, well, that's a strange thing for Paul to draw those connections, except for that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if you've hated someone in your heart, you've committed murder. And here Paul says, if you strike your father and mother or murder them, he's saying, if you hate them, you're in violation here. He says, don't do that. Now, this is to say that God has given us appointed authorities in our lives for children that would be parents. uh, And and there's there's these designated authorities that we ought to be reverent towards. And this command orients us to the fact that God has given us these structures for growth, for our edification. Think about how crazy our society is because of how whacked out family structures are. If children would be reverent to their fathers and mothers and their fathers and mothers would be godly, we would have a lot less of the problems we do as a culture. So that's just a common grace thing for us to be obedient to parents who have wisdom to pass down to us. I think as young people, especially, we can learn a lot, a lot from that, to be reverent to those who are over us in terms of structure and authority. And then lastly, uh, for murderers, uh, this would be not just murder, but as Jesus says in in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who commits hatred, these are things that, harm the image of god in another person we hate someone else who's created in god's image now you might say well that sounds like something to do it's it's a lot easier to hate something than not to hate something except for that in the modern world even secular psychologists will say things like don't hold on to hatred because it's bad for you as you hold on to it now they're tapping into something that is kind of true which is that god's actually told us that it's better more life-giving more freeing to actually be able to forgive someone and, and let that go Whereas the secular world says forgive someone for essentially no reason at all because it's better for you, a self-motivated thing. God says because I have forgiven you and he gives us an actual pattern to walk into, an actual means of having reconciliation with one another. So all of these commands are not rules for Christians to do or else we are punished and cut off from the land. That's not the point of these things. The point of them is they give us instructions as how we have to walk in our Christian life. That we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. We ought to honor people who are born in the image of God. Now, if that law of God was not an abiding thing that we still lived in today, we wouldn't really have morality to understand in the Bible because all of the New Testament's moral code is based on the Old Testament's moral laws because it's God's moral laws. God is an unchanging God. His decrees are forever and ever. And so the question we should really be asking is not, well, does God's word continue? Yes, it does. The question we should be asking is how do we observe it appropriately in our lives? So these laws aren't just things that we think about as pointing us to our need for the gospel, which certainly they do, but they also point us about how we live obediently in light of Christ, in light of freedom, in light of the spirit. Now, I think that can inform a ton of things and we'll explore a lot of that in discussion time. But suffice that to say this, all of these texts that Paul is exhorting, teaching that the law is good and lovely and and beautiful is something I want you to understand and get as a Christian, that the law is good. Paul thinks that the law and how we understand the law is intricately related to something like in verse five that the aim of our charge is love which issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith you think about being a christian having a mature and sincere faith having a robust faith being a mature believer who who rightly serves god the law is an inseparable part of that equation the law is inseparable now not any use of the law like the pharisees would inappropriately use the law but the lawful use of the law. And as Christians, we should get that perfectly right so that we can stand both on God's good moral ground and, and have life that is blessed in the land. We walk in keeping with God's law. Or, or we could deny God's law, disobey his words, not follow his instructions, and be left essentially to our own devices. Now we, we have these two ways before us. To quote, uh, as I close, just a little bit out of Psalm 1, which I think in our accountability groups we're trying to memorize. I don't want to condemn anybody for not having gotten started on that. However, I do want to read it for you because it's a, it's a life-giving verse. Psalm 1 sets before us two ways, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And the way of the righteous is a way that is, it yields blessing for those who walk in it. Now, Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Christian, your God loves you so much. He has told you the way to prosper, the way to life, and the way to find blessing in him. And he gives us these words as an abiding truth that we ought to take into our hearts and live by. So let's close and then we can go to some discussion. Lord, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for all that you have given us in your word to live by. And I pray that we would be disciplined in hearing it and obeying it and observing it. And you would help us, Lord, to make sense of all of the intricacies of your word. But let us not lose the beautiful truth that it is abiding for us to find life in your world, that we can live by all of your rules and statutes. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.